You know, it's, it's important for me as your pastor to shepherd you well and to lead you well. But the, the message that we're about to unpack this morning is probably more, more complex uh, messages I've, I've ever prepared for our faith family. Okay, so as I've been studying this week and I've been working through the text of where we're going, it's one of those deals where I thought, oh my goodness gracious, I sure hope it's clear. Uh, it's often said that if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pew, okay? <laughs> so my hope is to be as clear as I possibly can with where we're going this morning. But my concern is, is I want to make sure that we as a church can grab hold of this truth because I genuinely believe this morning I was woke up at 4 a.m. and I was like, Lord, please help this to make sense. Because I genuinely believe that if you and I can grab hold of the truth from the text of Scripture that we're about to see, I believe it genuinely can change your life. It will change the way that you view the world, the way that you view yourself, and the work that God has called you to do right here in this brief, temporary life that God has given to us. The thing that we're going to see here this morning is how there's a large group of people who totally missed the point. They were given an opportunity to see something with such great clarity. They could touch and smell and feel what God had revealed to them, and they completely missed it. They missed the point of the message. It reminds me of uh, December 17th, 1903. The Wright brothers are in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, in which they, for the very first time, have successfully flown an airplane a, flopping, a whopping 120 feet. And they flew and they celebrated. And throughout the day, the distance got longer and longer and longer. And they were celebrating. And they sent a message home to their parents in Ohio to let them know all of the successes that they had had that day. And in this telegram, they also said, we'll also be home for Christmas. Well, their sister was so excited, she took the telegram, went to the newspaper editor of their town and showed him the telegram. Upon reading the telegram, he said, Oh, good. They'll be here for Christmas. <laughs> he missed the point that the man had just flown for the very first time. What we're about to see here in the text is a group of people who had the evidence of the most remarkable thing that has ever happened, and they completely missed it. We're about to see where Israel had a front row seat to where God uses a building and architecture to reveal something rather moreover revealing someone and they missed it. That God gave them tabernacle and a temple to point to himself. And instead of seeing who it was pointing them to, they began to venerate the temple. They began to worship the temple rather than the God of the temple. They began to love the temple more than the God of the temple. And the very one that the temple was pointing them to, they persecuted and they murdered. What I want us to see this morning is the significance of these two structures, these two buildings, and who they are pointing us to. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. I love this narrative of scripture of where the church began. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, we see, we see where Jesus ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He promised to send the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. Thousands of people come to faith in Christ. 
You get to Acts chapter three, we see the first miracle take place where Peter and John are going into the temple. And as they walk in, they see a lame beggar who's begging for money. And Peter says, a gold and silver I have not, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And up the man stood. And he goes into the temple, jumping and leaping and praising God. Thousands of people recognize this lame beggar who's been sitting there for decades. And he's now jumping and leaping and celebrating what God has just done in his life. Peter sees this crowd gather and leverages it as a moment to preach the gospel. And again, thousands of more people come to faith in Christ. Then we see where the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders, they don't like what's happening as these men are preaching the resurrection of Jesus. So they imprison the disciples, but even the prison cannot hold them down because God used that as a way of drawing more people to faith in Christ. You get to Acts chapter 4, the boldness of the disciples. They, they are boldly preaching Jesus before these same men who persecuted and, and indicted and killed Jesus. You get to Acts chapter 5, as the church is gaining momentum, we see where a husband and wife lie about their giving record to the church. Ananias and Sapphira, they are inaccurate. They lie about their giving, and they drop dead right there on the spot. The fear of God begins to infiltrate the church and the community around them. As people started thinking, oh my goodness gracious, God is taking his church very, very seriously. Well, we see another problem that breaks out as the church is facing persecution at the end of chapter 5, we get to chapter 6, and we see division happening within the church already. The Hellenistic Jews, the, the Jewish widows who have a Greek orientation, they're being neglected in the daily distrib distribution of food. And so with this new problem that's, right, uh, that's come up, the apostles, they're like, listen, we can't stop preaching the gospel and praying and being evangelists, so we're going to raise up these deacons, these men who are going to serve and care for the church. One of those men is Stephen. He's one of the seven. The scripture says he's full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And then you get to the end of chapter 6, and Stephen is so winsome and articulate that the Jews, they can't stop him. They have inability to, to prevent from what he's saying because he's so um, articulate in, in articulating the gospel, and they can't stop his arguments. So these people started making up these lies about Stephen. Saying, man, he's lying about the temple. He's making up these lies about this guy named Jesus who's going to overthrow Moses and the temple. And all these lies are coming against Stephen. So he's brought before the Sanhedrin. Seventy men who have the authority to kill him, plus the high priest. And it's there he gives a defense. It's there that his life is hanging in the balance. So what does he do? It's in that moment Jesus is giving him the words to say to these men. And as he's in that moment, he begins preaching the Old Testament. We're calling it the treasure map. He walks through these Old Testament saints, who they are and how the people of Israel rejected them. Abraham, Joseph, Moses. We saw last week where the people of Israel had hardened their hearts and turned away from the Lord. And now we get to the very last section of Stephen's sermon, the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And he begins to land the plane on how the people complete, completely missed the point of the tabernacle and the temple. And that's where we pick up reading in Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 44. The scripture says this, Stephen says, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. 
Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hands make all these things? If you were to backpedal to Acts chapter 6, verse 13, these false witnesses, these liars are accusing Stephen that he never stopped speaking against this holy place. We heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Stephen argues that the Sanhedrin completely missed the point of the tabernacle and the temple. That these two structures were designed for something bigger than the people understood. Well, this morning, I want you to notice in the text why the tabernacle and the temple were constructed, how they point to Jesus, and what this means for us. I want you to see first, Moses' temporary tabernacle points to God's permanent presence. In the Scriptures, God gave specific instructions on how he was to be worshipped. If you go back to Exodus chapters 25 through 40, God gives meticulous detail as to how the tabernacle was to be constructed. The tabernacle was a temporary tent and a complex, if you will, of where God was to be worshipped. It was a temporary structure that the people, as they're traveling in the wilderness with Moses, this is where they would go to worship. And God gave such meticulous detail, he wanted to make sure that they constructed and maintained this facility as accurately as they could. Every specific dimension, every color, every article of clothing that the priest was supposed to wear, who could go into what room, how they were to prepare a sacrifice, all of this was important for they were pointing to something bigger. Every part of the tabernacle, even the furniture, was a shadow of an even greater reality that would be realized in Christ. Let me give you just two quick examples. The first is the wood altar that's covered in bronze. This this wooden altar. This was the place for burning an animal sacrifice. You see, before sinful man can come and approach a holy God, We have to be cleansed by blood. This goes all the way back to our first parents in the book of Genesis, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God killed an animal to atone for their sin. You see, the sacrifices were ugly and bloody, highlighting how awful our sin really is. You see, the sacrifices of animals, however, they did not provide perfect or permanent forgiveness. The people would have to come back year after year after year and provide sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But they never got to experience that perfect and permanent forgiveness. Well, we point forward to John chapter 1, where John the Baptist declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who provides perfect and permanent forgiveness through his shed blood. That Jesus, through the cross, has made a way for you to be forgiven of all of your sin. That you can be washed and made clean through his precious blood. You see, the blood that was shed on this wooden altar in the tabernacle was pointing forward to the blood that would be shed on a wooden cross. Okay, let's take the second part. How about the example of the east gate? The east gate of this tabernacle complex. There's only one door to get in. There's only one gate. One way in to the presence of God, one way out. What a picture that the only way, one way, you can come into the presence of God is through Jesus. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 10, uh, he, he, in verse 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Jesus declared exclusive access to God through himself. There are no other ways to God. There's lots of world religions, lots of cults out there who will try to convince and persuade you with great articulation of how there are a lot of different ways you can get to God. Jesus says, no, no. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus declared he alone is the one who gives you access into the very presence of God. We see it through this one door, this one gate that gives you access into the tabernacle. If we had some more time, we would unpack the table of showbread that pointed to Jesus, who is the bread of life. We would see the golden lampstand as the light that would illumine there inside the holy place where Jesus is the light of the world. And whoever believes in him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If we had more time, we'd look at the bronze basin that would be a place for washing. Well, we know that in Jesus, he provides perfect washing of sin through him. We would have time, we'd look at the altar of incense, a, a picture of the prayers of God's people being continually lifted up to God. Well, Jesus, who is our permanent intercessor, he is right now interceding on your behalf. Jesus is praying for you right now, and he offers up prayers for God's people both night and day. But you see, the tabernacle wasn't permanent. It was a shadow. It was a copy. It was a prototype of an even greater reality. The writer of Hebrews uh, said it like this. In Hebrews chapter 8, he says, These, talking about the tabernacle and all the furniture, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai exactly what this tabernacle was to look like. And so why was God so specific? It's because it was pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the tabernacle was not pointing forward to something, but someone. You see, Jesus is the word who became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
John chapter 1, verse 14, he dwelt, he tabernacled, he was among us. That the God who created the cosmos draws near to us, that he took on flesh and bone, and he lived a life among us, that God tabernacled. He's not just the God who is abiding forever in heaven. He's the God who draws near, which means God knows the pain that you go through, that Jesus experienced rejection and suffering. He knows what it's like to be mocked. Jesus knows what it's like to be left out and made fun of. Jesus knows what it's like to be belittled, to be given the stiff arm. Jesus knows what it's like to be despised, betrayed, forgotten, belittled, made fun of, abused, and murdered. He experienced all of those things. He identifies with you. You see, the God who made you and knows you and loves you, the God who knit you together while you were still in your mother's womb is the God who also draws near to you and he tabernacled among us. He took on flesh and he became like one of us. He identifies with you in your pain and suffering. He knows what it's like and he promises that if you look to him, he will by his grace and for his glory draw near to you. He will give you strength and mercy. And though he may take away the pain and suffering, he may not. But he promises, I'm going to give you my perfect presence to be with you when you go through hardship. So for those of you in this room who are going through pain, relationally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever it is you go through, you have a God who tabernacled who drew near to you because he loves you so much. For God so loved you that he tabernacled with you, that he has made a way through his shed blood so that now he can identify with you and he will give you grace and strength and mercy in the days ahead, whatever you face. But can I tell you something else I discovered this week? I'd never seen it before. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you go back to Genesis 2, 9. The scripture says it was placed in the middle uh, of the garden. You fast forward to Numbers chapter 2, verse 17. God instructed that the tabernacle was to be put in the middle of Israel's camp. That of all the tents of Israel, as they're out in the wilderness, he wanted the tabernacle right there smack dab in the middle. You see, God was dealing with the sin that came from the middle of the garden by putting the place of sacrifice to atone for sin in the very middle of the people. And if you can travel with me just a little bit farther, if we fast forward to John chapter 19, We see where Jesus died in the middle of two thieves. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The whole thing is rigged. (laughs) The whole thing. Jesus came. You see, God deals with sin through sacrifice, perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. But the question also remains, why would God put the tabernacle in the middle of the people? It's just the people would walk by it every day. As they're going about their day, washing, 
clothes or as they're eating their food and making preparations as they're going about their everyday life, the temple was right there in the middle. When you see just as the tabernacle, the very presence of God was right in the middle of the camp, in the middle of the daily life of God's people, God wants his presence to be the very center of your life. That indeed, when the Lord Jesus Christ is in the very middle, in the very heart and central of your life, he gets the glory. You live a life of worship. That worship is not constrained to a Sunday morning, but indeed all of your life, the choices that you make at that Wednesday morning meeting, how you handle the Algebra 2 test, how you go and play on the ball field, all of life becomes worship. That indeed all of who you are and all that you live for, when he is central, when Christ is the middle of your heart and life, God gets the glory and he labors for your good. You see, you are so loved by God that he sends a temporary tabernacle as a picture of an even greater tabernacling. I made up a word, so what? That Jesus is the one who came and dwelt to be among us. That he knows what it's like to go through what you go through. He identifies with you in your weakness. That he who is perfect draws near to the imperfect so that one day we who are imperfect will one day be perfect. One day you and I, we're going to tabernacle with Jesus in the new kingdom where our faith is going to be sight. Everything you and I have labored for in this life, the struggle that we go through will be gone. Our struggle against sin is going to be gone. Death is going to be forgotten. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to be with him forever. But what's interesting is that Stephen then pivots, verse 46, away from the tabernacle and then he points to number two. Solomon's temporary temple that was built for God's greater purpose. Now, I need you to stay with me, okay? Stay with me. Stephen holds up Solomon, verse 47, as the one God chose to build a temple in Jerusalem. But, question, does God need a building in order to be God? God doesn't need a building. A temple is not essential for God to dwell with his people. Stephen declares this, verse 48, the most high does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. Now Solomon confirmed this back when he constructed the temple. You go to 1 Kings 8. He says, but will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. In order to drive home this point with the Sanhedrin, Stephen then quotes Isaiah 66, where it says, The heavens are my throne, and the earth my footstool. He's declaring that God is high and exalted above all of creation. How can you contain an infinite God into a tiny little building? The Lord says in Isaiah 66, what will be my resting place? What kind of house will you build for me? What is Stephen doing here? Stephen is pulling back the covers and revealing the idolatry of the Sanhedrin. This Jewish leadership had so idolized the temple, they worshiped the temple, and he's reminding them, you're worshiping the wrong thing. 
You have put your heart upon this temporary building and God doesn't even need it. God is God well beyond the temple. He is self-sustaining, self-easy there, Bruce. Self-sufficient, there it is. I'm from Kentucky, y'all. Please be patient, okay? That he doesn't need us. You know, what was it? Um, Psalms talk about how like, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. Like, he's God. You and I going to sleep every night is our reminder from the Lord that we're not him. He's God. And the Sanhedrin completely missed of who the temple was pointing them to. They completely missed that it was driving them to the Messiah who would come and tabernacle among his people, that the God who's worthy of worship would come and draw near to his people and he would provide a way to God through him. We just sang this beautiful song and the words we declared. The veil was torn. If you go into the construction of the temple, you have the outer court of the Gentiles, then you have the inner uh, sanctuary, the, the holy place. That's where the, the priests would go regularly. But even inside that was another room called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And only one person can go in there one day a year. The high priest could go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. If anyone else tried to do it, they would die. In fact, the Old Testament gives us examples of people who went in there and they died. Legend has it. I'm not, I've not found an accurate source for, that, for this. But if the high priest went in there, oftentimes they would have a rope tied around his waist. Because if he died in the Holy of Holies because he had unconfessed sin, who's going to go get him? Okay. That's how serious the Holy of Holies is. The curtain from top to bottom was a huge, thick curtain. Thick, right? And the moment Jesus died, that curtain was ripped. Top to bottom, not bottom to top. God is the one who says, I'm making a way for anybody to come into my presence through my son. Jesus, the great high priest, through his perfect shed blood, has made a way for you to come into the very presence of God. And it's not just one day a year through one man. No, 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 no. It's anybody who's a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have access into the very presence of God through Christ. Anytime, anywhere whether you're in the boardroom or the soccer field or you're at the living room or the kitchen table, you, just, you can go into the very presence of God through Jesus. We can boldly come into his presence all because of Christ. And this poor Sanhedrin group, the men who have memorized the Old Testament have missed it. They have thought that worship is constrained or contained to a building. And Jesus came to obliterate that kind of thinking. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes into Samaria. He encounters a Samaritan woman. Remember, Samaritans and Jews hate each other. 
But Jesus loves the nations. And he goes to this woman of Samaria, this woman who's been married five times and is living with her boyfriend and has this messed up past. And Jesus uses her as a means of reaching a city, Sychar, with the gospel. And he unpacks like a trained TSA agent with the baggage of her past. And he reveals her need for a savior and declares, I'm the Messiah you've been looking for. And she says, there's going to come a point in time in which we'll, we'll go to Jerusalem and worship. Or worship will be here in Samaria. And Jesus is saying, listen, there's coming a day in which worship is not going to take place in Samaria. It's not going to take place in Jerusalem. He says, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But an hour is coming when the Father, excuse me, time is coming. Where did I lost myself? I'm sorry. When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit, meaning with passion from the heart. With truth, meaning aligns with Scripture. That God is looking for worshipers who are going to worship Him from our hearts. That's not about a specific place. Worship is about a specific person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That worship is an overflow of your heart as you're seeking to make much of Jesus and what he has come to do. But these Jews, they just couldn't quite get their heads around this. If you go back to John chapter 2, it's the first time that Jesus goes into the temple where he comes in and he starts flipping over tables. He's got a, a whip in his hand. He's driving out these people who are turning this house of prayer into a den of thieves. People are making profit off of the house of God. And he's so frustrated by this, so he drives them out with great zeal and passion. Well, the Jews are upset by him doing this. And they say, well, who do you think you are? You, you can't do this. Give us a sign that you have the authority to do this. And he says, okay, here's your sign. John 2. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Now, obviously, the Jews... He's not talking about the physical building. He's talking about something else. Early in his ministry, Jesus is already thinking about his death. He's already thinking about his resurrection. And he's declaring to them, this temple, it's about me. This, this facility, it's about me. It's driving you to me. You destroyed this temple and I'm gonna raise it up on the third day. I am the one the temple is pointing you to. Stephen's saying, listen, God is not contained in a building. I'm re revealing myself to you now that I am the new temple. I'm the true and greater temple. I'm the true and greater tabernacle. All of it, all this architecture, it's about me. It's pointing you to me. Do you remember how David was the one who said he wanted to build a house for God? But then God told David through the prophet Nathan, it's not going to be you. And in fact, it's going to be through your son. I'm going to raise up one of your a son who will build me a house. We go back to first, uh, I'm sorry, second Samuel chapter seven. The Lord told him, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. But there's a sense in which I don't think that God is talking specifically about Solomon. Because you see there in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God promised 
David that his son would build a house that lasts how long? Forever. Well, in 587 B.C., the Babylonians come in and destroy the temple. Then King Herod rebuilds it. He modifies it, makes it better after Zerubbabel. And then in 70 A.D., in come the Romans. They destroy it. Even to this day, there's no temple there in Jerusalem. So there's no way that that's what the Lord means there. There's got to be something else. There's got to be a house and a kingdom that lasts forever. This is where I want you to lean in. You and I know David's son. You see, Jesus is the true son of David. He's the architect and builder, the cornerstone of an enduring house of God. And this worship is not about a place, it's about a person. Okay, stay with me. God's temple was designed to point us to Jesus, the only one worthy of our worship. And so when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the temple gets personal. What are you talking about? When you put your faith in Jesus, you are now the temple. The address of the temple is no longer in downtown Jerusalem. The address of the temple is right here in this room. The address of the temple is in underground China and across the savannah of Africa. It's spreading all throughout Laos and Southeast Asia. That the temple is now in North Korea in hiding. That the temple of God is now all over South America. That the temple of God is the people of God who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we see throughout the New Testament. This is why Simon Peter, he says it like this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, now God's presence is in us. The presence of the living God is in you. Don't miss this. The temple is not about this building that was built a long time ago and has been destroyed. The temple is now in this room. It's you. You possess the presence of the living God. Paul said it like this in, in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you for God's temple is holy and that is what you are. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? 2 Corinthians 6, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. I want you to grab a hold of this is that you are now the temple of the living God. That it's not about big, uh, bricks and mortar. It's about you who are possessing the presence of Christ in you forever. Oh, grab hold of this. Let this reality soak in. In fact, this is your impact one. I'm, I'm challenging you to do this. As a follower of Jesus, bask in this reality. The temple is now inside of us. 
When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the presence of the living God now is here. And now you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and God himself takes up residence inside of you, which means tomorrow when you go to work, the temple of God is there because you are. It means when you go to school, the presence of the living God is already there because he is inside of you. That whatever you face in life, the presence of God is with you. Now, here's where we're at. You're going to be tempted not to believe that. You're going to be tempted to think, well, that's probably true for super Christians. That's probably true for Christians who have it together. That's probably true for Christ followers who don't sin like I do. No, 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 no. There's no addendum here. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, and now you are the temple. Hear me on this. Truth is truth regardless of how you feel. And the truth is, if you are in Christ, you are a temple of the living God that God himself is here. He's taken up permanent residence. Paul says in Ephesians 1, you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, meaning you can't lose him. He can't be taken out of you because he has been sealed there. He's been placed there permanently by God. That Jesus says in John 10, no one can snatch you from my hand. You're safe. He's got you permanently if you're in Christ. And he's holding on to you. And so now the temple is inside of you. So when you go to the doctor's office and they say, you have cancer, you don't have to be afraid because the temple, the living God lives here. It means when you're sitting in traffic on 119, (laughs) you're a temple. The presence of God is with you. When you face hardship and difficulty, remember, you are a temple of the living God. And for some of you, if you're tempted right now not to receive that or believe that, don't look now, but you're becoming like the Sanhedrin. You're missing the point of the message. Don't do that. This is the truth that God has revealed in his word, and this is who you are. And this changes your identity. It changes how you view yourself. It changes how you view the people around you. It changes how you live your life for the glory of King Jesus. And I hope and pray and labor that you will receive this reality, that Jesus, the true and greater tabernacle, the true and greater temple is now living inside of you. And he's there forever.